Okay. Um, we are, this week, we're going to finish up our, the, um, our, our stewardship, the series on stewardship, sorry, that we've done, that we've been talking about, Entrusted. And this week, what we want to focus on is our treasure, the last of the three. We've talked about stewarding our time, our talent, and our treasure. And so, if you don't mind, I want to go through those principles again that we've talked about in relation specifically to treasure, that my treasure, my money, and my resources is from God, and it belongs to God. That my treasure is a good gift from God's hand. And therefore, I am a steward of my treasure, of all of my resources and my money. As a steward, I should use my treasure, my money, and my resources as in, a, in a responsible manner, faithfully administering them for His purposes and His glory. And I'm accountable to God for the ways in which I steward my treasure, my money, and my resources. And finally, it's only right that I gladly return a portion of my treasure to God and to His work out of gratitude for all that He's done to me. And if I applied the steward definition that we've been using to this, I would say a steward is a person who's been entrusted with their treasure, their money and resources, and given the responsibility to manage that treasure according to the owner's vision, values, and desire. And good stewardship then is the careful, responsible management of the treasure, the God's, the God treasure, uh, the gifts that are entrusted to one's care. And this morning, what I want to do is I want to uh, focus on um, Luke 16. 1 to 9 is what we're going to go through. I've got scripture on here, verses 1 to 13, and on the page, if you've got the notes page, and I'd like you to stand and read this to, with me. It's a parable that Jesus called, told, commonly called the parable of the unjust steward, and that's the story I want to focus on as we talk about stewarding our treasure. So, if you, uh, let's, this passage is a little long. Why don't you just you can read along on the page or up on the screen and follow as I, you can just follow and listen as I read. So Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. The master commended, he commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money, this is not on the sheet. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we are in Luke 16, if you want to turn there in your Bible, um, in the parable of the, called the unjust steward. I want to say something very briefly about parables before we jump in. The parables are stories that are intended, this is really important, anytime you interpret a parable, to make a single point related to living well in the kingdom of God. They're intended to make a single point. And this parable is one of the most difficult and notorious. In fact, if you look, sometimes if people do a series on parables, there's a few they'll leave out. This one inevitably gets left out because of how difficult it is, and we'll get to that um, in a minute. I frankly disagree. It's one of my favorite parables. I love what Jesus is communicating. Um, for those of you that have been around a long time, I have Steve Sheff to thank for that. But um, I want to walk through it, and as we go through it, you'll kind of see uh, why there's some difficulty. So we're told that Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Um, he was probably a, an owner of a huge estate with a house. Likely the landowner in their culture didn't live there. He lived somewhere else. So he had a manager who lived on the estate, who ran the estate, and who had great power. He could make business contracts. He could cut deals. He had the power to enforce them. So his position of this estate manager was a very, very significant position. Um, it's actually probably similar. The Stidhams live on a ranch in the Flint Hills, and they manage that for a fellow, I think lives in Texas. I'm not sure of that. But there's a number of ranches in the Flint Hills that are owned by people in other states, very wealthy people. Um, I'm told there's one in the Flint Hills, I'm, I don't even remember the company now, but a really big company, and he owns one of those ranches. So it's similar to kind of that. And one day he gets word that the manager has been wasting his possessions. And the word possessions would encompass three things. His money, his property, and the resources on the land. So he was wasting all of it in some form. This word wasting, I put on here the, the Greek word uh, diaskorpizo. That even sounds evil, doesn't it? Diaskorpizo. It's the same word, the reason I put it on there, it's the same word that's used in Luke 15 of the younger son who left and wasted his father's money. So it's this, the same word. It's a very strong word. Um, it means like to throw something to the wind. So he's just throwing this guy's property to the wind. And this was a serious charge. I mean, a trust had been given to him. The series is entrusted. And in the middle of that, we have that word trust. A trust had been given to him, and he had violated that trust. And so in verse 2, he called him in, and he asked him, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Like, what am I hearing that you're doing? He shows up at the estate and fires him on the spot. And this, as we're going to see in a second, this uh, in verse 3, we'll look at that, but because he says, the manager, what am I going to do now? This is a big deal because the, when the word gets out of what he's done, that guy is likely never getting a job in that community or village again. And in those days and day and age, you didn't leave and change places very much. He was very much in deep weeds. And so the manager says to himself in verse 3, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. So he's in this huge bind. 
And then at the very beginning of verse 4, he says, I know what I'll do. I know what I'll do. What's interesting, on, your, on this sheet, after that word do, I put a little dot on there. And the reason I did that is because in the Greek, that, that is in the aorist tense, which means like at a single point in time, a very def, definitive action. So it's like he's thinking, what am I going to do? And suddenly he's like, aha. It's like I've, he has an aha moment. I know exactly what I'm going to do. The light bulb turns on. So he says, I know what I'm going to do. He gets this, this bright idea so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. And so to do this, what he knows is, is he needs to get these debtors, he needs to make them his friends by getting them in debt to him, getting them in debt to him so that when he loses his job, if he can't find other employment, one of them will take him into the house. So he hatches this plan, and I really love it. I mean, this is a really big gamble. It's a huge risk. It's like he's pushing all the chips into the center. Um, he's going all in on this. And so we see what his plan is in verse 5. So it says that he called in each one of his master's debtors. There are likely people who rented portions of this estate and farmed it, and then they would owe him money for doing that, and they could live off of some of that. Could have been even some villagers in the town who owed this man money. Um, but what he did is he invites each one in individually, in secrecy, because he, he can't let people know what's going on. So he invites each of them in one at a time. And he does this thing in great haste. If you look in verse 6, if I were to go forward, um, is it maybe it's not verse 6. It is... Um, yeah, in verse 6, towards the end, it says, he says, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. So on, on your sheet, I would circle that word quickly because he's doing this thing in haste. He has to, to hatch and do this plan before anybody can know that he was fired and that he has no authority to do what he's going to do. And so he sets his plan into action in verse 5. He called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Uh, we don't deal much in olive oil and olive trees around here. When we got to go to Israel, um, it was amazing to see olive orchards with the, the olive trees out there. Um, 900 gallons, this says. We know from Josephus that this amount would have been the yield of 146 olive trees. That's quite an orchard, right? This isn't a small amount. 146 olive trees. That's what his debt is. And this manager knocks it in half. And then in verse 7, he says, Then he asked the second, How much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. Now, we deal with wheat more around here. This one's a little more understandable than olive oil. That's 30 tons of wheat, 1,000 bushels, 30 tons of wheat. Again, from Josephus, in their time, this was the yield of 100 acres of wheat, 100 acres of wheat. Again, a very considerable debt, right? And then he knocks that off by one-fifth. The discount for both guys was 500 denarii or 500 days' wages. So the debt they both owed would have been a year and a half of work. That's what he saved them, was a year and a half work. They essentially owed him three years of work. He knocked it down to a year and a half. Uh, pretty interesting plan that he's developed, huh? What he's doing with these guys. 
I think for brevity's sake, Jesus stops there. I assume, we assume there were others. But all of this is simply for his own self-preservation. So, he ends up, it doesn't say, but we know he, he took, these are promissory notes that he had taken and he reworked them with these people. They reworked the notes. He took them in to the landowner and laid them down. And I can imagine he had a very wry smile on his face. He knew he was out of a job. And he had worked this whole gig out. Um, it's a brilliant plan, but it was, man, the chic- it's just chicanery. That's what it is. This man is a scoundrel, right? Can you imagine somebody doing that to you? From beginning to end, he was dishonest. If you look in verse 8, I would encourage you to circle that word, dishonest. He was a dishonest man. And the owner quickly, this is just knowing the situation. I think he realized that he had been had. And really, he faced two choices. He was between a rock and a hard place, the landowner. Uh, He had two choices. Either he lets it stand, right? He loses all that money leaves the debts as they are, in which case in the village, he's a really good guy, right? Because they think he's the one that really initiated all of this. Or the other thing is, is he could, uh, rather than eat his losses, he could go out and tell all the villagers this was an illegal action, and then he would demand those notes be rewritten. And if he did that, what kind of guy is he? I mean, he's kind of a villain, right? So he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, Um, My guess is he settled for the first option of just leaving it as it was and being the good guy. Um, This plan to me was such a bold stroke. It was genius. And I'm not the only one that thought that. Uh, If you look at verse 8, it says, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Because he had acted shrewdly. And this is where the surprise and shock in this story comes, is that he commends him. Um, the dishonest master, the dishonest manager. And the question is, how could the master possibly praise the manager who was so obviously a rogue, a scoundrel, and who had seriously defrauded him? How in the world could you, could you commend such a guy? And here's what I want you to see. If you look at the text closely, he's not commending him for defrauding him. He's commending him because he acted shrewdly. He commends him for acting shrewdly. So the combination is this. The owner's not approving of the manager's blatantly dishonest conduct. Rather, he is praising him for his resourcefulness and creativity in strategically solving a problem. Does that make sense? That's what he is commending him for. That word shrewd, I love that word. It is in Greek, phronemos. Uh, that word is so important. I want you to say it. Because uh, that word has stuck with me since I first heard Steve preach this in 1990. I've never forgotten that word. Can you say Franimas with me? Franimas. Okay, Franimas. Um, it's translated shrewd or shrewdly. We get our word phrenology, like the study of, of, of skull shape. Uh, phrenology comes from this word Franimas. It is a deep word. And it's hard to capture it with one word. Shrewd doesn't really do it justice. There's so much in, in, inside of it is the idea of, of being shrewd, of w- being wise, of, of clever, uh, of savvy. I almost put a picture of Jack Sparrow next to that one. Somebody that's wily. I think Wiley Coyote should have gone there, right? You can tell I watch too much stuff. It indicates sharp powers of judgment. A person who is phronimos is someone who is astute and they can think quickly on their feet. They have keen foresight, not foresight, but keen foresight. 
They are strategic thinkers. They're resourceful and creative problem solvers. So the owner is not approving of the manager's blatantly dishonest conduct. Again, he is praising him because he is phronimos, because he is resourceful and creative in solving a problem. I mean, let's be, let's be realistic. I'm sure the landowner was furious. He had been brilliantly outmaneuvered. The manager was a scoundrel, but he was a clever scoundrel. Scoundrel, And even though the landowner had been bested, and as happy as he was, I'm sure that perhaps with a little grin, he gave him this commendation. Because the manager had been committed to a cause. Now, that cause was self-preservation. He had recognized the situation he had found himself in. He took decisive action in the moment when it needed to be taken, and he did so with wild creativity. And so he commends that attribute. So, why did Jesus tell this story? He's not condoning the morality of the manager. Because remember, a parable makes a single point, right? It makes a single point. And Jesus used this story to highlight one particular quality that is seen in the dishonest manager, his shrewdness or his phronemos. And he does so to make a very important point. And the answer to the question, why does Jesus use this guy, is really in verse 8, because here's what Jesus says. For the people of this world are more shrewd, they are more phronimos in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. In other words, Jesus is saying non-Christians are more shrewd, more creative, more resourceful, more strategic in their own affairs than the people of God are with the things of God. That's a powerful statement. Is that not a powerful statement? Um, man, I can give you two examples. I, uh, I wish I could talk to you about Dow, um, the story of what he did to, uh, to gain the market in bromine, but I don't have time. I want to tell you another story of Franny Moss. Can I do that? Uh, it's the story of Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, and Gary Kubiak. Last year, they took the Amtrak to the Super Bowl to watch the Chiefs and the 49ers play. And we all know who won that game, right? Who? The Chiefs. Okay, I kind of expected like an uproar or something. Um, and this is not a true story. But at the station, Manning and Kubiak, they each bought a ticket, and they watched as Bilicek and Brady only bought one ticket. They got on the train, Brady and, I mean, Manning and Kubiak took their seat, but they watched Brady and Bilicek, and they immediately went into a restroom. The guy came through collecting tickets, got the tickets from everybody, went to the restroom, knocked on the door, said, ticket, please. The door cracked open, one hand reached out, gave him the ticket, and the door shut, and then he walked on to the next car. Then they came out and took their seats. And as they passed by uh, Manning and Kubiak, um, Brady said, just watch and learn, watch and learn. So they went to the game. And then Manning and Kubiak had a conversation afterwards, and they're like, let's try something similar. So they got to the train, and Bilicek and Brady did what they always do, right? Because we know they're cheaters. It's a good thing Bill Henry isn't here. They, they just bought one ticket. But then Brady and Bilicek were shocked that Manning and Kubiak didn't buy a single ticket and just got on the plane without a ticket. So like normal, Bilicek and Brady went to the toilet, the bathroom, shut the door, um, Peyton and Kubiak went to the bathroom next to them and shut the door. After 
Manning knew that Bilicek and Brady were in their restroom. They, he quietly walked out, went to the door, knocked on the door and said, ticket please. <laughs> okay. That's Franimas. And Jesus says people in the world are much more shrewd and resourceful and creative in their own business than people who follow him. So, on to Jesus' application in verse 9. Garth Brooks saying about friends in low places. Well, Jesus wants to talk about friends in high places. And in verse 9, he says this, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is his application of this parable. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, when the wealth is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Here's what he's saying. How do we gain friends to be welcomed in eternal dwelling? He's saying that by using our resources, we should use our resources to reach as many people as possible. So when the day comes when we enter into eternity, we'll be greeted by those who themselves, because of our giving and generosity, have found eternal life and have preceded us there, and then they welcome us into those eternal dwellings. And Jesus' followers, they live this way and they do this because they know, as the text says, when it is gone, they know that money will be gone, right? They know that one day they will die and that as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 7, that we bring nothing into this world, we take nothing out. So thinking strategically and knowing the temporary nature of worldly wealth and possessions, his followers choose to strategically invest much of their wealth in reaching souls. They steward their resources in such a way so as to reach as many people as possible for God. So that last half of verse 8 and verse 9, that's Jesus' way of saying as stewards, God's people should strive to resourcefully and creatively and strategically invest their money and their resources in God's kingdom, leveraging their wealth for kingdom purposes. God wants us to invest in eternity. That's what Jesus is calling us to do here, to invest in eternity. David Wynnum says, invest in the revolution of God. Invest in the revolution of God. Jesus wants us to do, uh, wants us to do that with the same, that sentence makes no sense. Jesus wants us to invest in eternity with the same, if not greater, levels of commitment to our mission as those who do not know God and are committed to their cause, whatever it is. We should be investing more strategically, more resourcefully. He wants us, Jesus wants us to invest in eternity with the same, if not greater, levels of resourcefulness and creativity to get the job done of of reaching people for the kingdom as those who do not know God and who act resourcefully to meet their own personal goals. And just like the shrewd manager, we should do this with a high commitment to his mission, recognizing the times that we are in, taking decisive action to seize our kairos moment, stewarding our money and resources in wildly creative ways. And we do this with the hallmarks we talked about the first week when we looked at First Chronicles 29. We do this eagerly, willingly. We do it gratefully generously, and we do it joyfully. 
So this brings us all back to something I talked about the first week related to stewardship. And it really relates to those first three principles that my treasure is from God and it belongs to him, that it's a good gift from God in his good hand, and that therefore I'm a steward of all of my treasure, that we can have two mindsets in relation to our treasure, our money and our resources. We can have a manager's mindset, in which case we will be generous, we will steward it well. We will be resourceful and creative and leveraging the things God gives us for the kingdom. But if we live with an owner's mindset, and we talked about this that first week, what we'll do, and here's how you know it, you hoard your treasure, your money, your resources. You keep most of it for you. You use most of it on you, storing up as much as possible. We talked about this last week in our Rooted group, storing up out of a desperate, fruitless attempt to provide future safety and security as if money can keep me secure in the future. Not sharing, not being generous, not blessing others, not resourcing the kingdom. So we hoard. And then we squander our resources. We waste them on things that are only temporary, that really, from an eternal perspective, don't make a difference. And I'm not saying we can't enjoy our resources. Paul says that God gives everything for our enjoyment. There's nothing wrong with that. But we begin to squander it when we have an owner's mentality, and we invest most of our resources in things on this earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. A number of us have been going through Rooted, uh, a small group kind of curriculum thing that we're, we're doing that's very powerful, and we're going to be in growing that and getting more groups next fall. But two weeks ago, the topic was on stewardship, and I was struck, so much of it fit what I was even thinking about. And just here's some things that they said in that book, that understanding that God is the true owner of your money, that he's the true owner, is the first principle of managing and stewarding it well. You have to know that he's the owner. Haggai 2.8 says, God says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. In 1 Chronicles 29.14, everything comes from you, Lord. We've only given to you what comes from your hand. The material goes on to say, God is the source, the provider, the creator. He's the owner and investor. I love that word. The investor who entrusts us with our wealth. We are merely charged to take care of God's possessions our role is to wisely manage and invest on God's behalf. And that section of the book su summarized this way. We are God's money managers. Everything we possess, it is His, and consequently our possessions are at His disposal. They're at His disposal. I want to jump to, um, if you don't mind... The challenge. I want to jump to the challenge. Let me do the questions first, if you don't mind. Here's some questions to ask of yourself that I've been asking. Am I stewarding my treasure, my money, and my resources in a way that's pleasing to God, that would get a well done, my good and faithful servant? If someone could see how I manage my treasure, my money, my resources, would they conclude I see myself as the owner of my treasure, should be treasure, or as the steward of my money and resources? Somebody could follow me around for a month, look at my, my budget, my expenditures. 
As I said here this morning, what is one thing I already know that I can steward differently in my life in regards to my treasure? And then, to me, the big thing I've been thinking is how many friends will you have welcoming you in eternal dwellings? How many friends will you have welcoming you in eternal dwellings? By friends meaning those who've entered into eternal life because of the way you invested your time, your talent, and your treasure. So here's the challenge. I don't know where people are here with giving. The Bible talks about the starting point is the tithe, 10%. I just want to say one thing about the tithe because I've, I've experienced this in my own life. If you have an owner's mentality, 10% seems like a lot of money. Like, that is unreasonable, right? Have any of you ever had that thought? Like, this is unreasonable. We're poor. That's unreasonable. If you have an owner's mentality, if you have a manager's mentality, it changes. Let me give you an example. What if next year you had no source of income and I came and gave you $50,000 and said, I'd love for you to have this to live off for this year, but I only have one request. Would you take 5000 of that and use it to bless and help other people? Would you not gladly say, would you not say with great joy, I will gladly take the 50000 you gave me to live on, I'll gladly take that 5000 and use it to bless other people because I'm so grateful that you have put something into my own care. So if you have a mindset of a, a manager, this whole tithing concept is so much easier. Let me tell you one other way I know if I have an owner's mindset. If I get to the 10%, I say, there it is. I've done my duty. I'm at my 10%. The other 90%, it's mine to do with it as I will. That's an owner's mindset. Because how much of that belongs to God? All of it. All of it. And so all of my money is at his disposal. All of it's his disposal. So I want to challenge you. I don't know where you are with giving, but I challenge you to give regularly. If you are not in the habit, give regularly, give consistently. In 1 Corinthians 16, 12, 2, Paul talks about bringing um, weekly the gifts. Um, and the principle of that is give regularly. Make it a habit. Second, I want to challenge you to proportionate giving and proportionate growth. And here's what I mean by that. Because there are people here, I'm sure, that may be giving nothing or nowhere close to the 10%. You're at 1% or 2%. And I'm not here to lay a guilt trip on you. But we need to get to that starting point that God calls us to. And so by proportionate growth, here's my challenge. That if you're essentially at 1% of giving, which the average church in America is at a little over 3% is what the average person gives. And the average evangelical church in America, 3%. If you're at 1%, what I want to challenge you is in 2021, add 1% to that. Just proportionally, just, just grow at 1%. If you're at 3%, grow it to 4 If you're at 8 grow it to 9 I really want to challenge you if you're at 10 because it's not 10 is his and 90 is mine. 10 is his and 90 is mine. If you're at 10, I challenge you to take that up to 11, to inch that thing up a percent and see if God, how God does not work through you and bless you with that. One thing about finances before I wrap up. Um, if finances isn't your best bailiwick, you're not that great with it, we are going to have another Financial Peace University at the end of January. 
and it will be a, an online hybrid kind of thing. So if that's something you've never done, I strongly encourage it. Those who have done it find great benefit out of learning a lot of biblical principles about how to handle money. So the challenge. I've been mentioning um, all, week, all four weeks that Rick Warren says when we meet God, he's going to ask two questions, right? The first is the salvation question. What did you do with my son? The second question is what did you do with what I gave you? And last week, do you remember it was about talent? And God asked Moses, what's in your hand? So this week in staff, Lisa said, I know what it should be this week. What's in your wallet? <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Have to give credit to where credit is due. The money in my account has been given to me by the Lord to steward, and I will give an account. The money that's in my account has been given me to steward, and I will give an account to God one day. God expects a return on his investment. He wants me to invest in the kingdom and in eternity. Our treasure is a resource given to us by God, entrusted to us to manage well. He expects us to be good stewards of the treasure he gives us for his purposes and for his glory. So I want to end with George. I started with George the first week. Do you remember George had a man managing his property out in the western frontier? And he wrote him, when he found out he was not managing his stewardship well, George wrote him this letter, you're now receiving my money. Imagine this is God. As you're now receiving my money, your time is not your own. And every day or hour or dollar misapplied, it's a loss to me. I shall consider you in no other light than as a man who has engaged his time and service to conduct and manage my interests. My interests. So imagine the future with me. Imagine you walk through death's door, you enter into eternal, your eternal home. Imagine a line of people lined up to welcome you to your eternal dwelling. People from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, people from Emporia, lining up, and as you come in, they say, welcome, thank you for investing your resources for eternity's sake. And the next, welcome, Thank you. And you go down the line and all these people welcome you. And then at the end of the line is Jesus himself. And he says, well done. Well done. My good and faithful servant. As William James says, the greatest use of a life is to spend it on something that will outlast it. We've been ending every week with the commitment that Thomas uh, McClellan made to the Lord when he was 20. Would you stand with me? He left Scotland, came to the U.S., started a business that failed, ended up getting another business in Tennessee, and I won't get into, go into all the details, that became, is right now the world's number one insurer of disabled people one of the wealthiest insurance companies of the world. 
during his whole life, he, was, he lived frugally and he used much of his money to invest into missionaries and kingdom work. When he died, he created uh, a foundation called the McClellan Foundation that now has over $400 million in funds and 150 years after his death have invested billions of dollars in kingdom ventures to reach people for Jesus Christ. A 20-year-old makes a commitment. 150 years later, billions of dollars have been used to reach souls who are still probably, he's welcoming them, but as they come into eternity, who probably give him a thank you. So can we end with this commitment and make it a commitment of our heart? Can we pray this together? So, oh, God of heaven, record it in the book of thy remembrances that from henceforth I am thine forever. I renounce all former lords that have had dominion over me and consecrate all that I am and all that I have, the faculties of my mind, the members of my body, my time, my influence over others, all to be used entirely for thy glory and resolutely employed in obedience to thy commands as long as thou continuest in life. So 12, may we be a community of people who are stewards of everything we have, of our time, of our talent, of our treasure. May we be people who live sufficiently and give extravagantly. Live sufficiently. Give extravagantly for the sake of the kingdom. May we be phronimas in the way we steward our resources for the sake of eternity. All right, 12. With those words, you are sent to a lost world. Enjoy your holiday with family. But please, wherever you go, let us live sent.